Well, good morning, everyone. Let's pray as we turn our attention to God's Word this morning. Lord God, we thank you and we praise you this morning for the love that you have demonstrated toward us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray and ask God that you would now work through your word and through your spirit to open up our hearts and our minds to receive the truth of your word, that you would move in our hearts, that you would grow and build our church as a family who love one another, just as you, Jesus, have loved us. We ask for that this morning and we pray for that in Jesus' name, amen. I have... uh, one brother. I love him dearly. I trust him. I would pretty much do anything for him, and I am confident that he feels the same way about me. And I think that's how it should be. I mean, we're, we're good friends, but we're more than friends. We're brothers. And there's a bond between us that runs deeper than other friendships. But life between us wasn't always so great. Uh, when we were kids, uh, my brother and I uh, would often fight with each other, <laughs> physically and verbally. Now, as the older brother, he was bigger than me, so I tried to avoid getting into physical fights with him um, because he pretty much always got the better of me, except for this one time where I got him in a headlock between my legs. You know, so I'm squeezing his neck, and he can't do anything. Every time he tries to move, I just squeeze hard, and the the air slowly fades. And so I've got him. I've got him. But you can't stay there forever. I mean, eventually you have to let him up, which, of course, I did and immediately paid for it. You know, my brother picked me up and threw me into the cinder block wall in our basement And I immediately crumpled to the floor in a heap. (laughs) But there really was love between us. (laughs) We, We really did love each other. It's true. When he left for college, that's when I felt the loss. That's when I first, I think, really realized how much my brother meant to me. And ever since then, our love has gotten deeper year by year Now, as we were kids, our fighting really bothered our parents, especially our mother. I remember going uh, to church and then getting in fights with my brother in the car on the way home from church, and my mother would be like, we just went to church, what's wrong with you? Of course, that's not at all what she sounds like. It's just funnier if you say it that way. (laughs) What's wrong with you? I couldn't tell her at the time that I was a wretched, unconverted sinner with no real faith and so bound to sin until I was forgiven and set free in Jesus Christ. I couldn't say that as a kid, although that was the reality. Now that I'm an adult, I understand why she was always pleading with us to stop fighting with each other. As a parent myself, I understand how she felt and why it bothered her so much. As family, we're supposed to love each other and not nearly kill each other. (laughs) Now, kids and youth in the room, raise your hand for a moment if you've ever gotten into a fight with your brother or your sister. Raise your hand if you've ever gotten into a fight with your brother or sister. Yep. 
Have your parents ever then come and helped you work it out? Raise your hand. Did they come and help you work it out? Yeah. I think some of the parents are like, I'm so glad they said that. (laughs) Now, you parents in the room, let me ask you this question. When you help your children work things out when they're having a fight with each other, have you ever made an appeal to them based on their relationship? Have you ever said, you guys are brothers, you guys are sisters, that's not how brothers and sisters are supposed to treat each other? I mean, yeah, you, you tell them you're not supposed to get angry and, and you're not supposed to punch each other and you're supposed to be patient and kind with each other, right? You, you point to the rules, but you go beyond the rules and you, you appeal to the relationship. Have you done that, parents? Yes, we have too. Well, that's something like what's happening, what Paul is doing in this letter to Philemon in his appeal to him on behalf of Onesimus. He's making an appeal to this family bond with the demands of love that it places on us. See, Philemon and Onesimus, they're brothers. They're not physically brothers. They're not biological brothers. They're brothers in Christ. And it's important for us to realize that that's even more important, even deeper than biological brothers. You see? So he makes his appeal based on this fact that they are brothers in the household of God. And their relationship as brothers in Christ should compel them to love each other in deed and in truth. So turning your Bibles to Philemon, we're going to finish this little letter this morning. And the message that we're going to see today is love the fellowship of believers in the Lord. Love one another. That's the core of the Christian ethic. Let love be genuine, Romans 12, 9. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, Colossians 3, 14. This is the message that we should love one another, 1 John 3, 11. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth, 1 John 3, 18. And we could go on and on. This fellowship of believers, this thing, look around, that we call church, it should be marked by love for one another. And we're going to see how that love undermines the institution of slavery at the same time. So we're going to set the context, we're going to examine the text, and then we'll draw applications at the end. So first, let's set the context. As I'm fond of saying, context is... Say it again, context is... That's right, context is king, so let's look at the context. There are two main things that we need to see uh, is before we jump into our text. First, the letter is public. It's to the whole church. And second, Philemon's love for all the saints. Paul led Philemon to faith in Christ. It happened uh, several years earlier. And he then served with Paul in ministry and became both a beloved friend and a co-worker with uh, Paul. And since Paul had never been to Colossae, Colossians 2.1, this probably happened while Paul was in nearby Ephesus, ministering for a couple of years. Now, fast forward, at this point, Paul is in prison for the gospel, for Christ, most likely in Rome. And Philemon had become a prominent member of the church in Colossae. In fact, the church met in his house. Verse 3, Philemon owned a slave named Onesimus who had run away, and somehow he got connected with Paul in Rome. 
We're not told how, but however it happened, Paul then leads him to Christ. Onesimus becomes a Christian and his life is changed. And now Paul is writing this letter to Philemon on Onesimus's behalf. Now the letter is primarily to Philemon. However, unlike the personal letters to Timothy and Titus, the letter to Philemon addresses a wider audience. Paul mentions Aphia, who's probably Philemon's wife, and Archippus, a fellow, our fellow soldier, verse 2. He was in ministry, possibly a pastor. Paul also includes the whole church, verse 2. And he speaks to them. Paul addresses them at the end of the letter when he says in verse 22, I'm hoping that through your prayers, the your there is plural. He's saying, I'm hoping that through your prayers, church, that I will be given to you, plural. And then in the benediction in verse 25, he's also using plural pronouns. He's addressing the whole church. He blesses, gives a benediction to the whole church. So we know that this was a public letter. This personal letter to Philemon was going to be read publicly in the church. Why? Because the situation impacts the whole church. Yes, uh, the wider audience adds pressure, it provides accountability, but more than this, Paul uses this situation to teach the church that their fellowship must be marked by love and everything that entails. And that leads us to the second thing that we need to see in the context is Philemon's love for all the saints. We saw this in verses 4 through 7. Paul thanks God for Philemon's love toward all the saints, verses 4 and 5, and he prays that the fellowship of your faith would be effective for the sake of Christ. You see, membership in God's household comes with the obligation to love one another, even if that requires sacrificing your time, your plans, your schedule, your desires, your resources in order to do so. And one of the main applications is the nature and the extent of our duty to each other. And that, that is a much needed word in our highly individualistic culture and in our highly individualized understanding of the Christian faith. It moves us decidedly away from a it's me and Jesus mentality to a we and Jesus mentality. Not just on paper, but practically. Talk is cheap. Love must be shown in deed and in truth. Verse 7, Paul says, I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Paul is saying, look, I've heard about your love for all the saints, and I find joy and encouragement in that. That's how it should be. Way to go. You, you've refreshed the hearts of the saints. That word refreshed, it's like, imagine a, an army after a long march and many battles finds a place to rest and recover, or like a haven for a weary traveler who's been on a long and difficult road. So Philemon has refreshed the hearts of the saints. Philemon has practiced need-supplying, burden-relieving, rest-providing, faith-encouraging, comfort-giving, hospitality ministry. In short, he loved. Genuine faith is evident in true biblical love that shows itself in compassion and service to one another. Do you have a reputation like Philemon for showing that kind of love? Okay, that's the context. Now, let's examine the main text in verses 8 through 25. Paul picks up 
where he left off. He says in verse 8, Accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, verses 8 and 9. Now, Paul's not going to make his specific request until way down in verse 17. He's going to slowly build up to his request by giving supporting reasons for it. But notice he says, accordingly. We could translate that, therefore, or for this reason. He's connecting his appeal to what he had just said. It's because of Philemon's reputation of love that he, he chooses not to command but to appeal to him. This is the reason why he's confident that he's going to do what's required for the sake of love. Because this is the kind of person that Philemon is. Then he says, I, Paul, an old man and prisoner for Christ Jesus, appeal to you, verse 9. Paul mentions his imprisonment five times in this short letter. Verse 1, 9, 10, 13, and 23. And that does more than just arouse sympathy for his needs, both as an old man, as, an, a, prisoner, as a prisoner for Christ. It reminds Philemon that commitment to Christ often comes with a cost. If Paul is willing to suffer in chains for the sake of the gospel, then Philemon should be willing to respond with love to his runaway slave for the sake of Christ. Verse 10, I appeal to you for my child, whose father I became in my imprisonment, Onesimus. In the Greek, Onesimus' name is the last thing in the sentence. Saves his name to the end. Now, he skips all the details of how Onesimus found him. We don't get any of that. And he goes right to the most important thing, his conversion. And he's a changed man. Genuine faith leads to a changed life. And so the mention of Onesimus' name leads Paul to make a play on words. Onesimus means useful. So he makes a play on words with his name in verse 11. Look there. He says, formerly he was useless to you. Apparently he wasn't doing his job. But now he is indeed useful. He truly is Onesimus to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. He'd become very dear to Paul. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own free will." Onesimus proved very useful in serving Paul, which is why he would be glad to keep him, to have him stay. But he wants Philemon's consent so that his goodness would, not, would be his choice and not forced. And this would be an act of love toward Paul to make sure that Paul's needs are continually cared for while he's in prison. And I think a case can be made from these verses that Paul is hoping that Philemon will send Onesimus back to him to continue caring for him in prison. Then Paul suggests what God seems to be doing in all of this. And I want you to note his humility here. Since no human can fully discern God's purposes, he says in verse 15, For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul sees the hand of God at work in this situation. Perhaps this is why he was separated from you. God is the implied subject of the passive verb here. Yes, Onesimus ran away, 
But God was at work in it and through it to bring about his conversion and then to send him back as a beloved brother. Again, we're not told why Onesimus ran away. We're not told how he may have wronged Philemon. Instead, Paul focuses on how God, in his sovereignty, is turning this evil for good. So that you might have him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Verse 16. You see, you're going to have him forever. Not meaning you're going to have him permanently as a slave, but you're going to have him forever because you're going to share eternity with him as your brother. Notice how their relationship has been reframed. Jesus has transformed and deepened their relationship from master-slave to beloved brothers in the household of God. And now their behavior must match this spiritual reality. In verse 17, then, Paul finally makes his direct request. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Paul, when he uses this word partner, he's, he's, it's related to the word fellowship. He's saying, if, if, if you have any fellowship with me in the faith, if you have any fellowship with me in the faith, he's not questioning Philemon's faith or their fellowship. He's, he's asking him to act on these things. So if you have any partnership with me, then receive him as you would receive me. Now, how would Philemon welcome Paul? As a most beloved friend and an honored guest. I mean, this is the apostle. Could you imagine if Paul was coming over for dinner? Would you use the paper plates? It's a great saint. But more than that, This is the guy that led Philemon to Christ. Welcome Onesimus as you'd welcome me as a beloved brother with all the demands of love that come with that. And then Paul says, if he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Now, we don't know how, again, Onesimus may have wronged him. Maybe he stole money from him when he ran away so that he could pay for his journey or provide for some of his needs. We're not told. Paul simply says, if he's wronged you or owes you anything, I'll pay it. And rather than dictating this part of the letter to a scribe, Paul writes this in his own hand. It's like signing his name. He's like, it's in, I'm putting this in writing. I will pay this. Do you see how... Paul is clearing the path for reconciliation. He's removing every obstacle that could possibly get in the way of them being reconciled as brothers in Christ. And then, as further motivation, Paul says in verse 19, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. I love this. It's exactly like we say not to mention, and then we go on and mention it anyway. (laughs) Not to mention, you owe me your very self. Because Paul led Philemon to faith in Christ for salvation, in some sense, he owes a debt to Paul. And Paul is, is willing to call that debt in, not for himself, but for Onesimus. Verse 20, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. It's like Paul is saying to him, to Philemon, hey, do this for me as your brother in the Lord and as your father in the faith. 
In verse 21, Paul says, Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you'll do even more than I say. Now, what exactly is Paul asking, and what is this even more? It's clear that Paul asks Philemon to receive Onesimus, to welcome him as a beloved brother. It's also pretty clear that Paul would like him to send him back for ministry. But does receiving him as a beloved brother just mean, hey, um, I want you to treat him good as a slave? Or does it mean more than that? I think it means more than that. I think Paul suggests in verses 15 and 16 that he give him his freedom, even though he's not explicit. I think that's what he's after. So when Paul says, I know you'll do even more than I say, I think he's referring to setting him free. So I would summarize Paul's request to Philemon in this letter something like this. Philemon, I want you to forgive Onesimus his wrongs and receive him as a beloved brother. I want you to reconcile, and then I want you to send him back to me for ministry. And I'm confident that you'll do even more than this. You will set him free. Verse 22, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, church, I will be graciously given to you. I love this. It's like, oh, by the way, I hope to stop by, and I'll see how things stand between the two of you. Do you see? This is just a masterful letter. Paul is applying maximum pressure on Philemon. And then Paul closes with final greetings and a benediction. Now, how do we apply this little letter as a church today? First, the fellowship of believers must be marked by love for one another. In Christ, Philemon and Onesimus have become part of a new community, a new society called the church. And one of the ways that the church is described in the Bible is as a family, like a family. Now, there are other ways of describing the church. The church is also described as a body with Christ as the head. It's described as a building with Christ as the cornerstone. It's described as a bride with Christ as the groom. Here in Philemon, the main picture we get of the church is that of a family. He's got all this family language in here. Now, every one of these pictures tells us something about the church and what it's supposed to be like, what it's supposed to do, how's it supposed to function. And in Philemon... We see this family picture, and it points us to the close bonds of love that are supposed to exist in a family. The relationship between Philemon and Onesimus has been reframed from master-slave to beloved brother in God's household, and that fundamentally changes how they relate to one another. Notice the focus of his appeal is based on their relationship, just like we talked about in the, in the introduction. He says, receive him no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother. Should you own your biological brother as a slave? I'm surprised it's taking you so long to answer that question. I'm getting nervous. Should you own your biological brother as a slave? No. You hesitated. There's some of you out there who are like, Let me think about it. What's wrong with you? <laughs> no, of course not. You see, the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ has far-reaching implications. It brings unity across all different kinds of differences. 
race and class and sex and status because we're all one family in God's household. I want you to consider for a minute this command that you see in the New Testament to greet one another with a holy kiss. We'll take that as an example. At that time, you only greeted very close friends and family with a kiss. Masters did not kiss slaves when they greeted them. Jews did not kiss Gentiles when they greeted them. That sort of intimate greeting across ethnic and social lines would have been scandalous because it broke down established boundaries. It showed that Christians were all like family. We're all one, and there is no partiality. With this close family bond then comes this central obligation to love one another, and that fulfills the law. Love fulfills the law, but the demands of love go far beyond merely the letter of the law. It expects so much more of us. Love's the basic principle that governs how we're supposed to treat each other as Christians. I'm talking about biblical love, not the sappy, sentimental, paper-thin, permissive love that Hollywood tries to sell us, where love is defined as following your heart and doing whatever you want and uncritical acceptance of everyone and everything. Not that. That's garbage. I'm talking about biblical love. Love as God defined it. That's foundational for Christian ethics. Oh, and it makes defining what's required of us as Christians so much more difficult so much broader and so much deeper. You know, Christ-like love doesn't look to do the minimum. It's not asking, what's the most I have to do in order to love this other person? It's not just looking to check a box. The appeal to love then for Philemon is far more challenging than a command. Rather than getting us off the hook, the appeal to love is more demanding You could keep a command, even if it's difficult, but you could do it grudgingly and with anger. Think about this. I could take out the trash in service to my wife, but for whatever reason, be angry about it. And in so doing, completely empty of it, of any love and any good. The Bible says, if I give away everything that I have and I have not love, I gain nothing. 1 Corinthians 13, 3. By appealing to love, Paul wants Philemon to do what's required for the right reasons. The demands of love require far more than just keeping the letter of the law. The point is that the church should be marked by love. That's the expectation that comes with being brothers and sisters in God's house. That's how the world is going to know that we're Christ's. By our love for one another. And so we see that this is also tied to our witness to the world. And now we can begin to see why this is a public letter. It's not simply to put more pressure on Philemon. Paul is very keen to teach the church in this very important situation how to love one another like a family. So let your love, brothers and sisters, refresh each other's hearts in big and small ways in what you say and how you say it in acts of service and generosity and self-sacrifice in the same kind of hospitality ministry that Philemon showed and show no partiality in your love for the people who are in this household of faith. 
Second, we see the lordship of Christ. The letter is anchored in the lordship of Christ. Paul mentions it several times through this tiny letter. Like bookends, he opens and closes the letter from the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3 and verse 25. But more than this, he refers to Christ's lordship at the end of both major sections of the letter, verse 16 and verse 20. He prays recognizing that we live for the sake of Christ, verse 6. By framing this whole letter under the lordship of Jesus Christ, Paul is reminding Philemon that he also has a master in heaven, Colossians 4.1. This situates all authority in government, in the church, in the family, in business, in society, all of it, including Philemon's authority, under the ultimate authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the eyes of the Romans, one of them was a master and one of them was a slave. But in the church, they're both brothers with one Lord overall. And this too undermines slavery at a deep, deep level. Christ is Lord, not Caesar. It's not the rules and the customs of the Roman Empire that are supposed to guide Christian conduct, but the Lord Jesus Christ. And we could say it's not the customs and the conduct of America that are to guide our conduct. We serve the Lord Christ, not men. Amen? The Lordship of Christ then puts all earthly relationships and authority in the right perspective, and it shapes how we live. We too, brothers and sisters, must live consistent with our confession that Christ is Lord. Do you believe Christ is Lord? Do you confess that Christ is Lord? Is Christ Lord of your marriage? Is Christ Lord of your home? Is Christ the Lord of your finances and of your entertainment choices and your dating relationship? Is Christ the Lord in your job? Do you work heartily as to the Lord? Colossians 3.22. Do you treat your employees justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven? Colossians 4.1. You see, Jesus is Lord. It's not just a slogan for us. It's our way of life, and it has to impact everything that we do. Third, we see the sovereignty of God. Paul says, for this is perhaps why he was parted for you for a while. Paul sees the hand of God at work in this. Then at the end of the letter, notice he prays that through your prayers, I might be graciously given to you. That's another passive verb with God as the implied subject. God's the one who has to deliver that. So just like Paul, we must leave it to God to order and provide. Now, these two verses, they tell us that God is in sovereign control over history. God is at work here bringing good out of evil. Of course, the classic example is in Joseph's life. Joseph says at the end of the book, he says, look, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It was all of his afflictions that paved the way for for Joseph to become second in command in Egypt, but far more than himself. That's what God used to save his people, Genesis 50, 20. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. And the primary good is conforming us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 29. It is a special comfort and encouragement to Philemon, but also to us, that in all the afflictions that we face, face, God has a special hand in them. God's wise and overruling hand uses even the worst things for the good to his people. 
As Puritan Thomas Watson put it, the most dark, cloudy providences of God have some sunshine in them. What a blessed condition is a true believer in. When he dies, he goes to God. And while he lives, everything shall do him good. Since God makes all things work for our good, we should make all things work for his glory. Like Paul, look at what Paul is doing. He's looking for God's purposes in this. And then he calls for a response from Philemon for the sake of Christ, for his glory. Fourth, we see the call to love in light of the gospel. We see the impact that the gospel has to have, leads us to self-sacrifice, to reconciliation, to forgiveness, to redemption. All right, we heard last week that the gospel is this good news. It is the message, this news, this message that Jesus Christ died as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He died in our place for our sins, paying the penalty that we deserve for our sins so that we wouldn't face God's wrath and be condemned and go to hell. And then he rose from the dead, proving he defeated sin and death so that anyone who responds with repentance and faith would be saved. That's the gospel message. That love demonstrated in the gospel is what shapes our love for each other. So we read, by this we know love. This is how we know what love is, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John 3, 16. Or as Jesus said, love one another just as I have loved you. We're to love in light of the gospel. The way Jesus loved, we love. His love is the pattern for us. So, for example, where do we see that in Philemon? Paul says, if he owes you anything, I'll pay his debt. He says, if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. If he's wronged you in any way, Charge that to my account. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. He took our sin debt on himself and he paid it for us. Do you see how Paul is imitating Christ here in his love? In paying his, in his willingness to pay this material debt for Onesimus to Philemon, he's reflecting Christ's willingness to pay our moral debt to God. It's gospel-shaped love. Do you see that? On top of this, the gospel is also what drives, what necessitates our forgiveness of one another. He is appealing to his salvation in verse 19. He's saying, look, you've been forgiven. You've been redeemed in Christ Jesus. Now, therefore, you go and forgive Onesimus and redeem him. It's like the parable of the unforgiving servant. The master forgives him a huge debt that he could never repay, and then he says, shouldn't you also have then had mercy on your fellow servants? We can't receive the grace and forgiveness of God while at the same time withholding it from other people. Paul perceives here that the way that you overcome evil is by transformed lives through the power of the gospel. I love the fact that God's grace is not just the power to save, it's the power to sanctify. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. That's the key for transforming the church and transforming the culture. 
political change is insufficient. We need to change hearts. And that's why our mission to go and make disciples, evangelism and discipleship, is so important. All right, last, I'm going to tie some of this together. Talk about how the Christian faith undermines slavery at its core. Now, if you want a, a look at what the Old Testament teaches about slavery, I'll, I'll point you back to the sermon from Deuteronomy 15. It's called, Open Wide Your Hand. But let's tie some of these threads together and see what the New Testament teaches about slavery. First, the Christians couldn't simply change the legal system in the Roman Empire. They didn't have that power. And telling slaves to rebel would just get them killed. Second, the command to love your neighbor as yourself, as Christ loved us, if they lived that out, that alone would end it. Third, the family relationships, their unity as Christians, undermined the ethnic and social boundaries established by the Romans. Fourth, Ephesians 6, 9 and 4, 1, teach masters to treat their slaves as they would want to be treated, not to threaten them, let alone abuse them, and that God shows no partiality, so no one is inferior. Fifth, this Christian slogan, Jesus is Lord, relativizes all other claims to be the boss in any sphere, government, church, family, society, etc. The church was radically different from the world. For the Romans, one could be a master and one could be a slave, but not in the church. They were both brothers with one Lord overall. Sixth, in 1 Timothy 1.10, Paul gives a list of ungodly sinners, and he puts enslavers in that list with the sexually immoral and murderers and liars. Enslavers are considered wicked, and slavery is evil. Seventh, in Philemon, Paul makes this case, urging Philemon to receive Onesimus no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother. It's a strong appeal to set him free. Finally, the way that you overcome evil is transformed lives through the power of the gospel. The gospel isn't just a status change. It's not just like, yes, go into heaven. The gospel changes your heart. That's how you bring change. So the power of the gospel. So while they couldn't immediately change the Roman system and abolish slavery, what they could do is start a new society, a new culture, a new citizenship, a new family, a new people called Christians with their own rules where there was no slavery and everyone is family and everyone's a servant of the Lord Jesus. A society that could exist within the empire and change it from within. And that's Exactly what has happened everywhere Christianity has gone. I want our church to be that kind of a community, that kind of family, where we love one another. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you this morning for calling us to faith in Christ, for adopting us as your beloved children, making us part of your family. Thank you for making us a part of a family with many brothers and sisters in the faith. We thank you and praise you for the love of Christ poured into our hearts through the Spirit. We ask and pray that you would help us to love one another with brotherly affection, that our love would be genuine, that we would not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We ask this for ourselves, for our families, for our church. Do this in us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.